Throughout the morning, we we're going to be looking at John chapter 19, and I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me there, and, and we'll be referring to that throughout the morning. John chapter 19, or if you're looking for one of the Bibles in the chairs, it's on page 905. John chapter 19. And then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and, and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at, at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king! They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to him, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. There, sitting in judgment, Pilate proclaimed, He's innocent! And yet he condemned him for his innocence and sent him to die. Today, in our modern culture, today in our sophistication, today in our enlightenment, we too condemn an innocent man. Every day we hear Jesus used as a swear word, referred to as irrelevant in science journals, mocked as old-fashioned, out of touch with reality. Innocence dies Every day. And yet today when we read of the trial and later of the crucifixion, the death and the burial. And then on Sunday we remember innocence returns. I'm wondering. As you have come and joined together to this. A paradoxical day. Good yet sorrowing. I'm wondering if on this day, 
your heart might hear innocence proclaimed. I cling to the old rugged cross. Why? Because it was there on the cross my Jesus died. Proclaiming me innocent. Today, would you listen to the voice of God calling, longing, yearning, desiring, you. We read in scripture where he says, come unto me all who are weak and heavy laden, find rest for your souls. Today, would you too hear the voice of innocence beckoning, crying, urging, inviting, come. Each of us harbors a courtroom inside of us, discerning right and wrong, guilty or innocent. Would you find Jesus innocent today? I'm very conscious of the fact that possibly on a day like today, some has been dragged to church against their will. Please. Find Christ innocent. In a little while, we will continue our worship and reflection on these passages, but I'm going to invite you to stand with me and once again affirm as we pray for a moment. Lord Jesus, we thank you that in your coming, in your innocence, in your dying, you took upon yourself our sins that we might have life with you. And I know there may be some in this room today who are in contemplation of this dear fact and reason for our gathering. May in their heart of hearts, in the courtroom of their mind, reflect and ask you into their hearts and lives simply by saying, forgive me, Lord Jesus. And as you are innocent, make me innocent as well. That I may have a relationship with you, life everlasting. Thank you. Amen. John 19 continues with the crucifixion of Christ. It says the soldiers took charge of Jesus and carrying his own cross, he went to the place of the skull. Here they crucified him with two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened it to the cross. And it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now many Jews, they read this sign and the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And so the sign was written in Aramaic and and in Latin and in Greek. And the chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate. said, don't write the King of the Jews But this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, I have written. What I have written, I have written. And the soldiers crucified Jesus. They took his clothes and they divided them into four shares, one for each of them. Uh, With this undergarment remaining, this garment 
seamless, woven into one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide who will get it. This happened to fulfill the scriptures, which said they divided my garments among them, and they cast lots or rolled dice for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. The crucifixion of Jesus. A torturous, horrible, painful, shameful, excruciating way to die. In fact, the word excruciating literally means from the cross. They invented a word in order to explain the pain of crucifixion. Nails pounded into the hands and the feet of Jesus. This one who was unjustly condemned to death. A movie came out a few years ago, The Passion of the Christ, directed by a man named Mel Gibson. Uh, He said something interesting when interviewed about the crucifixion scene of Christ. See, in this particular scene, there's a close-up of the hand of Christ and a nail being held to it, and then the hammer pounding that nail to attach Jesus to this cross. And Gibson said, do you know that that was my hand holding the nail in that shot? That that was my hand holding the hammer and pounding the nail into the hand of Christ? And the interviewer said, why did you do that? Why did you have to enter into that scene and become the the hand that crucified Jesus? And the response of the director, producer was, because I was the one. My sins nailed Christ to the cross. They took him, him there. Our sin sent Christ to the cross. God stepped into history for the purpose and the passion to give his life away to pay a penalty for our sin. The historian, the, the Jewish historian Josephus of the time wrote that the crucifixion was the most wretched of deaths. Second Peter. First Peter, pardon me, chapter 2 says, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Suffering was part of what Jesus went through on the cross. Horrible suffering. And those of us who follow him have been called to that same thing. He left us an example that we should follow in his steps. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. And when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. And when he suffered, he made no threats. And instead, he entrusted himself to the one, the Lord, who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. Because of Christ's injustice, we find our justification by God. Because of his suffering, 
He brings healing to our souls. Because his blood was shed, we find redemption and forgiveness from our sins. The writer of Hebrews points that out. When they say, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. His blood brings the redemption of our sins. Our sins nailed him to the cross. Good Friday? It is a bit of a paradox, isn't it? Brutal, painful, shameful, horrendous Friday was not what was chosen, though. In the midst of it, it was good. The death of Jesus. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Jesus is dead. Jesus is dead. We cannot miss this fact. Jesus hadn't fainted. He wasn't just bordering on death. He wasn't faking it. He was dead. This is a critical part of the Easter story. Jesus is dead. Have you ever received news of a friend or a loved one passing away? Have been hit with that other, the utter disbelief that comes. He's dead? What? This is unbelievable. I cannot believe this. The disciples felt the same way. Some of the disciples had fled the crucifixion scene, denying him. Others had stayed and watched in disbelief as the Romans nailed their hero to a cross and let him hang to die. All that they had put their hope in was now gone. They trusted this guy. They thought he was going to rescue them and lead them and save them, and now he's dead. Now what do they do? They had walked with Jesus night and day for the last three years, just 
think briefly in your mind. Think about everything that has happened in your life in the last three years. It's a significant amount of time. And for the disciples, these guys saw miracles. They saw blind men see, lame men walk, demons are cast out. Thousands are fed from scraps in a boy's lunch. Jesus brought healing and freedom and life to all he came in contact with. And now, it feels like it was all for nothing. Everything that Jesus said and taught hangs in the balance. Is he truly the Son of God? Or was it all just talk? Was he truly the Lord of life, stepped down from heaven? Or just a a really good actor? It sucked a lot of people in. The disciples at this point, right here at this moment, the death of Jesus, the disciples stand at a crossroads. Jesus is dead. Do I go back to fishing, to collecting taxes? What now? Now the problem the disciples had was that all they saw was a dead Jesus on a cross. They forgot about the promise of Jesus himself when he said, He would tear it on the temple, and three days later, he would raise it up again. Three days from now, everything will change. The reality of today, of the situation, uh, is that the majority of us here today have believed that. You know what happens three days from now. You've embraced it. You believe it. It defines you. But for a few moments, I want you to picture those in your life who have not believed it. Picture those in your life who only know a dead Jesus on a cross, your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, your classmates. The feelings the disciples had as they see Jesus hanging there, dead. Feelings of loss, of hopelessness, of purposelessness. What now? These are the same feelings that our friends and our family, our neighbors, co-workers, classmates, it's the same feelings they have every day. Imagine living life only knowing a dead Jesus. And at this point in the story, that's all the disciples knew. And at this point in in our friends and our family story, that's all they know as well. I encourage you, go and tell them the rest of the story. But for this moment, bring it back. We need to remember and we need to focus on that what takes place three days from now could not have happened without Jesus shedding his blood and dying. Not fainting, not faking, dying on the cross. Because without the shedding of blood, as we've heard before, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. A few minutes ago, we had just been left thinking of Jesus' lifeless body hanging on the cross. An honorable burial was the last thing that Jesus' enemies had wanted for him. But because it was the day of preparation, and because Jewish law demanded that no body be left on the cross overnight, they came for the body. Joseph of Arimathea, a disciple of Christ, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked that Pilate might give him the body. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, the highest ruling body in the land, He was an honorable, a wealthy, a good and righteous, a respected man. When he came to Pilate, at first his request was queried with some concern, but after Pilate was assured that Jesus was dead, he gave him the needed permission. As Mark indicates, it was a considerable act of courage 
on Joseph's part to come and ask for the body of Jesus. And he certainly had nothing to gain from this act. But he was not alone, as we read. Nicodemus was also there. Another secret disciple came to help. And together, they brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, 75 pounds in weight. 75 pounds of spices. And took linen and wrapped the body of their Lord and Savior carefully with layer of linen and layer of spice and layer of linen and layer of spice and laid his body in the grave. Clearly, this was a burial fit for a king. Few people would have that kind of money dedicated to their burial. Clearly, money was no object to these men as they cared for the lifeless body of Christ. And what a contrast. Only a few hours earlier, Jesus was in the hands of cruel men who beat and bruised and bloodied his body. Now, only hours after his death, he is in the tender hands of those who loved him dearly. They took his body and they laid it in an unused tomb. Fascinating. A tomb that had never known decay or composition was a fit resting place for a body that would never see corruption. So what do we learn? Quickly, three things. Observations that I made. Two men who had never openly associated with Christ in his life, now at great risk and courage, associated with him in death. death. Strange contrast, is it not? Peter, who boldly confessed his affirmation and his loyalty to Christ with gestures and words of self-confidence, disappoints and fades away, while secret followers rise up and care for the body of Jesus. But while we admire their courage, are we not also troubled by their fear of association with Christ in life? Through their fears, had they not in a real sense denied their Lord and Savior? Possibly today, this Good Friday, is a day when some secret disciples of Christ will have courage to follow him openly. And I wonder what they were thinking as they laid his body to rest. Were they thinking about the majesty of God? Were they thinking about the words of Christ? Were they thinking about the power of God as they laid that lifeless body in the tomb? What did they understand of the resurrection? It seems strange to me that, again, the enemies of Jesus had more confidence in his words while he was alive than his followers. For they went to Pilate and says, we remember that when he was alive, he said, in three days he will rise again. Go place a guard so that it doesn't happen. And yet these men lovingly wrap and bind the body with 75 pounds of spice lay him in a tomb, and roll a, roll a rock across the tomb. Had they forgotten? Had they doubted? Were they not like the disciples on the Emmaus Road, who as they were walking back were discouraged as they remembered and realized that at this point Jesus had not yet risen from the dead? 
Why is it that the words and the promises of God are sometimes so overshadowed by our fears and the circumstances of our lives? And then finally, the grave was the penalty borne by Christ because of our sins. It, too, was part of his humiliation. Not just his suffering, not just his death, but his burial was part of his humiliation for our forgiveness of sins. The author of life in a grave. How can that be? The Heidelberg or the Westminster Confession says, Wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born and that in a low condition made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross in being buried and in continuing under the power of death for a time. But while it was part of his humiliation, it was never a sign of defeat. For even in the grave, Christ was victorious. And that's why I love the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. What is the only comfort in life and death? That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but I belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied all my sins. Beloved, that's why we call it good Friday.